Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, there, significant events in the life of an individual have a way of shifting your perspective entirely. Um, I, I use this example quite frequently, but when Andrea and I got married, we realized very quickly how selfish each of us individually were. And over the course of several years before we had children, we sort of, kind of like sandpaper against wood, I suppose, war against the other, smoothing out a lot of those rough spots of selfishness. But it was getting married where we started to realize just how selfish we really, we really are or really were. And then we had children, and again, a shift in perspective took place where we then saw how selfish we were together. That somehow the selfishness apart had sort of worn off, but now we had become uh, together selfish We're over our time and our money. And now this little thing that was in our home was taking up all of our resources and all of our time and all of our free moments and things like that. But th- those significant events in your life, of which for us there will be many more to come, I'm sure, shift your perspective on the ways you see life, on the ways you think about things. Well, another thing that does that is trial. Extreme trial uh, going into really rough difficulties in life have a way of, of shifting your perspective entirely. And in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 3, we're going to see where David uh, has a shift in perspective by virtue of trial. So look with me at Psalm 3. Let's read the heading first. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing on your people, Selah. Join with me in prayer over this text. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we've read this text that already some thoughts in our hearts have begun to um, percolate and I pray that you would uh, allow us as we think about your text deeply to understand it and apply it to our lives. So please, Lord, open our eyes that we can see the text, open our mind that we may understand and open our heart that we may obey it in Jesus' name, amen. We come uh, this morning to one of the many psalms that we're going to encounter that are written by David, by King David, and that are identified as such as being written by him. No doubt there were more that probably are not identified, but there are a, a number of psalms that are identified specifically as a psalm of David. But, but many of the psalms carry the, the title that it will be a psalm of David, and maybe even some instruction on how that psalm is to go, or maybe the tune that is supposed to accompany that psalm. But only 14 psalms 
actually tell us the occasion in David's life that inspired the psalm. And this particular story that is connected to it is when David fled from Absalom, and it's found in 2 Samuel chapters 15 all the way to 19, when David was on the run from his son Absalom. In our Wednesday night Bible study that we do every Wednesday night, uh, for now it is, is on Zoom, we'll be getting to the story of David fleeing from Absalom probably in the next few weeks. Um, and so if you have questions or if I read that title and you thought to yourself, I don't even know anything about that story, I would encourage you to join us on Wednesday night. For now, it's on a Zoom meeting that we email out every week, and then hopefully in the weeks to come, it will be in person. But uh, join us on Wednesday night as we go through the Old Testament and as we uncover a lot of those things that you may be ignorant of, uh, that we can help uh, kind of demystify the Old Testament. It's an open invitation to you. But I, so I won't go through all of the details of David fleeing from Absalom, but enough to get us an understanding of what's going on in this, this psalm, in this psalm as in the context in which it's written. David had many sons. Two of them were Absalom and Amnon. Now Amnon's sister Tamar was beautiful, and Amnon uh, had some sort of an attraction for her, we might say. And as disgusting as that really sounds to us, as we might find that to have an affinity for your sister in that way, uh, Amnon is a disgusting guy. And so Amnon disgraces Tamar in the worst way imaginable. And Absalom, who is also the brother of Tamar, finds out about it. And like a good older brother, he's mad about it. And he wants to protect his sister, I suppose. And so Absalom goes to the step of wickedness where he arranges this uh, family reunion of sorts and he devises this plot where he's going to execute Amnon or he's going to have his servants execute Amnon for what he's done. And so he wants to wait until the opportune moment and he does so and he has his servants uh, strike uh, Amnon and, and kill him. And then Absalom flees. And so for three years... He lived his life on the run out of probably fear that David, his father, is going to put him to death for retaliation that he, that he struck his own brother and killed him, also David's son. And so after three years of running, David is counseled by others to bring him back into Jerusalem and spare his life and all of this. And so David brings him back into Jerusalem where uh, Absalom lives for about two years and the two don't talk to each other. They're giving each other the silent treatment for about two years. And during that two years, at some point, uh, Absalom hatches this plan to take over the throne from his father David. And so he works at it for several years of trying to basically politically maneuver himself within the nation. And the Bible tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so at some point... In all of his finagling, he manages to get the attraction of a lot of the men of Israel, and a lot of them are coming under his leadership. And so he leaves Jerusalem, gathers together this group of people, and then marches into Jerusalem with the support of a lot of the men of Israel. And his aim, as he comes into Jerusalem, is to take over the throne from his father David. And so David, seeing that he's outnumbered, picks up his family, and leaves his home, and leaves his throne behind. So this psalm is composed during a time when David 
is running for his life from his son who has already killed another one of his sons and is coming into into Jerusalem to kill him and to take his throne. The psalm that we're looking at is divided pretty neatly into three main sections. Each of the sections are marked with a cry out to the Lord, a new cry out to the Lord. So you'll see that probably in your Bibles if you have the ESV where it's marked, O Lord, and in the end, O Lord, O my God, uh, in verses 1, verse 3, and verse 7. And from these three sections, we're going to see three observations from the psalm itself. The first is that trouble is a guarantee. Trouble is a guarantee. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I know we're in Psalm 3, but you have to remember Psalm 1 and 2. Remember the last two weeks we've been in Psalm 1 and 2. And I told you that those introduce the entire Psalter to us. Now, book one of Psalms, which is, chap- which is Psalm 1 all the way through Psalm 41. That's book one. There are five books in the whole book of Psalms. But book one inside the, the Psalter is, chapter, is uh, Psalm 1 to 41. And that whole book is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His King, which originally was David, but then ultimately is Jesus. And so you'll remember probably in Psalm 1, even if you didn't participate with us when we were going through Psalm 1, you'll probably remember Psalm 1 in your head. If not, you can even just look back at Psalm 1. You remember that idyllic picture in, in verse 3 of that tree that's sitting by the streams of water. It's, it bears its fruit in season and, it, and it's so prosperous and, and, and good. And then the wicked are not so. And they, they die like a worm in the desert. Those are my words, not the words of the psalmist. But then, then we go to Psalm 2. And there's this, these people that are plotting and scheming to take over from the Lord. And the Lord laughs at them in the heavens. And he puts his king on his holy hill. And, and that solves that. And so when you get to the end of Psalm 2... You're really optimistic. In fact, if you didn't know anything about the works of the world around you, and you just had Psalm 1 and 2 to read, you would leave really pretty confident about the Lord's rule over the earth. It would seem like the just always win. God rules the world in righteousness, and righteousness will always prevail. And none of y'all can do anything about it. God rules this place. Then we get to Psalm 3, and it starts off, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Well, maybe that's just, a, maybe that's just an anomaly. What about Psalm 4? And you could go with me down through your Bible in Psalm 4, in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Well, what about Psalm 5? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Well, what about Psalm 6? O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. 
Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Well, what about Psalm 7? O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Psalm 8 and 9 are psalms of praise, but then we get to Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? What about Psalm 11? In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What about Psalm 12? Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. What about Psalm 13? Perhaps the culmination of all these. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You have to understand what kind of crisis we've entered into immediately following the promises of Psalm 1 and 2. king is on his holy hill in Psalm 2 and the Lord is is laughing but by Psalm 3 the king is running from his holy hill and his son wants to kill him almost all the psalms through Psalm 13 thereafter are all about the sorrow being faced by that very same king who was placed on that holy hill in Zion So what good then are the promises of Psalm 1 and 2 if the immediate result for the king that is on that holy hill is to run in fear that he will die at the hands of his own son? And I'll do you one better. What hope do the people of God have if God seems incapable of being able to deliver for the king? What hope do I have if he can't deliver for David? You might look at verse 1 and think, I've never been in a position exactly like David is in here, where my foes are rising against me, perhaps even my son chasing me from my home, saying there is no salvation in God. But foes have many faces. Some of them are are like David here. They're real flesh and blood humans through whom persecution or abuse of one kind kind or another arises. Puts you in a place where you can 
relate to exactly where David is. Other foes may be psychological. Depression, anxiety, many other kinds of things. These have the same effect as what we see as the enemies of David in the first three lines there. Look at just the first three lines of verse verse 1. How many, many are rising. Many are saying. You get that repetition there. Many, many, many. It's this feeling that they keep coming and coming and coming. And there seems to be no end to them. Tell me how long it is in the midst of these overwhelming attacks and trials of various kinds before you begin to doubt the goodness of God. You begin to doubt His ability to actually provide for you. For most of us, it doesn't take long as the suffering rises that we begin to doubt the promises of God. And all of these foes lead us to hearing the taunt between our ears. Is this where God's promises lead? Is this where they're taking us? Well, if so, then surely there is no salvation in God. And that's exactly where David is tempted to go at the end of verse 2. Those of you who have ever suffered through deep trials know this kind of feeling. I, I've told you before uh, of a time in my life going through depression where I didn't know how I was going to be able to get up out of bed. Nor did I really want to get out of bed. Some have, have dealt with trauma in their childhood that have left them sad, perhaps uh, depressed like that, maybe even bitter with others, unable to forgive others or seemingly unable to forgive others. Some are, are dealing with the level of anxiety that just paralyze you in fear and you want to move, but you just can't for some reason, that your entire body is just seized and held hostage by your own mind, where you just cannot get up and move for, for fear that is paralyzing you. And during this time, I'm sure the word pandemic isn't really helping you any. But then let's broaden it out just a little bit. Some have family issues that have frustrated you to no end where you're dealing with perhaps one or a few other members of your family that just seem to continue to, to live in sin and that sin is impacting the, the family as a whole and no one and nothing can really get through to them. Some have dealt with sin issues that you just can't seem to shake. That you dive into sin headlong and then it leads you to this repeated pattern over and over followed by you saying sorry to the Lord and then wallowing in remorse and then repeating the same sin pattern over and over again and you keep coming back to it and it disgusts you but you just don't know how you can actually get free of it. The point is that we could keep talking about foes and enemies and trials of various kinds that, that all put us into that same category until all of us as Christians realize we're all in that circle. Notice as David writes this psalm, he doesn't mention Absalom in the psalm itself. He just says foes. This is written and recorded for you and for me, and the Old Testament audience that's reading it too, because surely we all have these kinds of foes that whisper these taunts in our ears. Now, 
I want you to imagine with me that you're in the midst of that trial. I don't know if you are there right now or not, but let's just imagine for a moment that you are, and you've reached that pinnacle of frustration, and you sit down in your pastor's office, and he says to you, have faith in God. Believe. Trust in Jesus. Tell me, how do you feel with that counsel? You're at the height of your frustration and you've reached a, really maybe the low point of your frustration and, and you, you've reached the, the end and here you come for counsel and that's what he tells you. Well, you want to roll your eyes. Maybe you want to strangle his neck. You want to get up and you want to walk out. How dare he give me that same old trite counsel that I've heard a million times before. But Christian, is it the counsel that's the problem? Or is it the fact that by the time that you've sat down in his office, you have already begun to believe the lie that the enemy has been telling you? Don't you know? There is no salvation for you in God. If that's the counsel he's got, if that's all the words he's going to impart to you, you need to go somewhere else. That feeling that you have about that trite counsel that you're hearing, trust in Christ. That rolling of the eyes that you may actually do or you may feel like doing, that rejection that sits at the bottom of your heart is not from God. And it's actually a sign that you have believed the lie of Satan himself, the greatest of all foes, who has been telling the same lie since the foundations of the world. Did God really say? Don't you know? There is no salvation in God. Wake up! Perhaps we can relate to David after all. But what we have to wrap our minds around is that there's an implicit promise in living in a fallen world. Trouble is a guarantee. It's a certainty. And while we are here, myriad trials will come to us, driving us deep into a pit of despair. And all of those trials are whispering the same tune over and over again. If there is a God... He doesn't care about you because if He did, why would He leave you in suffering like this? Now some of you have been given a gift of faith where in spite of the number of trials that come your way, you have never been driven to that place of doubt where you're criticizing God. And I suspect, I know some of you are in that boat. I suspect it's not many of you in that boat. I know it's certainly not me, but some are in that boat, where they've been given this gift. Do you know why you have been given that gift? Well, there may be many reasons in the mind of God why He has given you that gift in particular, but I can tell you one of them so that you may turn and strengthen your brothers and sisters by reminding them of the Lord's goodness. Do not sit on a gift of faith as if, as if it was given only for you.
especially while you have brothers and sisters who are around you that are believing the lies of the enemy that there is no hope for them in God. If you have been given the gift of faith, you've also been called to a ministry of listening and wise counsel. So use that gift. Because in this life, trouble is a guarantee. And your brothers and sisters need you. Second, the Lord hears your plea. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around So David calls out again here, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He tells us that his crying, uh, that in his crying, the Lord answered him from the same holy hill, the hill of, of Zion. That's the place where David came and placed the Ark of the Covenant once he had established it on the hill there in Zion. He placed the Ark of the Covenant there at Zion. And Zion started out as really an actual hill in Jerusalem, and it, and it still is. But eventually the name Zion became that name that is given to the place where God issues His decrees. It's like His place of governance where He set His, his king, and through His king He rules the world and makes His decrees. But it's also the place to which His people will stream to receive salvation and rescue from Him. How did David know he had received an answer from the Lord who was on his holy hill? How did he know that? He slept and he woke up again. I want you to place yourself in David's shoes for just a moment if you can. Just imagine what this would be like. You have no smartphone. You have no GPS. You have no find my friends. You might not even have any friends. And you're on the run from your own son who has already chased you out of your own house and from your own kingdom, who has already killed your own son, and he's bringing with him swaths, large swaths of the men of your country against you. And you're hiding in caves, you're running under the cover of of darkness, not knowing who you might come across that might rat you out, who might have uh, uh, allegiance to Absalom, and not to mention that you don't know where Absalom actually is. He might have spies looking on you at this very moment. You might come over the next hill and you might find him there. And then you have an impossible choice of what do I do? Do I fight my son and maybe kill him? Or do I run from him and potentially my own life is in danger? And so you have to, what you're left with is you have to move in the dark so that you can stay under the cover of darkness. And during the day, you have to stay awake so that you can watch out lest you be attacked and killed. You've been up probably for many hours straight. And one night, you lay down and slept. And you woke up again the next morning. Can you imagine any more vulnerable of a position to put yourself in when you're on the run from a predator than to lay down and sleep The Lord protected David. He sustained David through the night. 
And Christian, you might be going through trials, as I've mentioned before. You might have just come through a trial, and you might be ready, or you might be ready to go into a trial. But I want you to consider for a moment that you woke up today, and you are still a Christian. We put so much confidence in our flesh and we underestimate the value of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. How easily beguiled we really are. How weak our flesh really is. How frail our faith is at times. We could be soaring on cloud nine one moment and two straight days of 103 degree fever and we're convinced that God kills us and wants us, wants us dead and He hates us. Consider for a moment what an incredible mercy it is through various kinds of trial that He has kept you in faith. That He has has kept you from saying in your heart, there is no God. He's kept you from believing it. Think about that fact until it becomes a marvelous mystery to you. He has kept you a Christian to this day. It's His doing. He has done that for you. And I'm sure you've wondered, as we all have, why are these trials given to us? Why would we be driven into such despair? Why would would we have to go through this? And I'm confident there are many answers to that question of which I could not even possibly fathom that are in the mind of God alone, but I do think David clues us in, at least in this passage, to maybe one of those answers, and it's there, I think, in verse 3, where he says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I want to submit to you for your consideration that the design of a trial is so that God might be the one who receives the glory and that he might be the lifter of your head. I also want you to consider what the fall has actually done to us as people. Among other things, our hearts are now entrenched in a blatant distrust of God. And we are prone to trust in our own strength and in our own abilities to save. As an example, if the bills are coming due and you don't have money to pay them, a normal reaction we would, that we would consider normal as people, and that all your friends would consider normal, would be to do things like apply for jobs, maybe pick up some odd jobs here and there, mow yards, things like that. Maybe sell some of the stuff that you have in today's day and age, maybe start a GoFundMe or something. There might be a thousand other things that you might do to try to get more money, and there's some wisdom in all of those things. But the point is, all of those things would be considered normal. And the point is that praying and asking God to provide would be considered at least a little bit strange, especially if that was your only course of action. Now, if it was sprinkled on top of all of those other things that you might do, well, that might be okay. But if you, if you have eight hours before a deadline and you've spent five hours in prayer, most people would say to you, you wasted five hours of time. 
And if you're receiving counsel from your friends and you tell them all the things that you've done, I applied for jobs, I picked up odd jobs, I sold a lot of stuff, and you never mentioned prayer, most of your friends are not even going to notice. Most of your friends will say, well, yeah, that's, that's all you can do. I mean, you did everything you could possibly do, right? I mean, sometimes you just deck is stacked against you. You did all you could do. We're pretty confident in our own abilities, and we're prone to distrust God's provision, His plan, and His goodness. So what effect does a trial have that completely takes your legs out from under you? What purpose in that scenario does a trial have that just mows you down? And by trial, I mean sun chasing you from your home, attempting to murder you kind of trial. What effect does that have on you when you have nothing but God? Perhaps it causes you to understand that it's not our strength that is a shield about us. It's not our strength that is our glory, and it's not our strength that is the lifter of our heads. But it is God on whom we should depend. Perhaps in trials, whatever they be, it is God chiseling away the old man that's filled with distrust in his goodness and bringing out the new man being renewed by the Holy Spirit who knows that this world is not my home. So then what is David's solution to his problem? In verse 4 he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. He prayed. He asked in prayer. He was driven to prayer. Truly, I mean, it was the only thing he had left. He's driven to prayer. Now, if you find a Christian who has suffered greatly but has not learned to pray, you have found someone who is wallowing in self-pity and is supremely confident in his own abilities. And you can't say about prayer, well, I tried that. As if it's some key that unlocks the jail cell of spiritual suffering and trial. That's not what prayer actually is. Prayer is a tool that brings our trial into submission to God and places all our expectation and hope squarely on Him and His timing of deliverance. And when His children cry out to Him, the Lord hears their plea. Third, He will rescue thee. They rhyme. All three of them. Little poem we've got here going for our points. He will rescue thee. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Remember at the beginning of the psalm in verse 1, there are many rising against me. Now the psalmist is asking the Lord to arise in verse 7. The many arising now versus the Lord arising and fighting on behalf of David. The foes at the beginning are saying there is no salvation in God. And in verse 7, he's asking the Lord to save him and expressing confidently then in verse 8 that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
he's depicting these foes like animals with their wild fangs threatened to rip him apart. And he's asking the Lord to strike them on their cheek and break their teeth so that they can't devour me. It's his ask of the Lord to not give his enemies the final say, but to deliver him. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading the Psalms and applying it to you, but there is often something wrong with the way and how we apply it to ourselves. When we're in intense suffering, our foes are gathered around us. When we as Christians cry out the content of Psalm 3, we probably mean it a little bit differently than David does. When we ask the Lord to strike down all our enemies and break the teeth of the wicked, we are in part recognizing a judgment that God has already done in Christ. And we're asking for a judgment that has not yet taken place in our future. We're recognizing a reality of already and not yet when we take up these psalms and apply them to ourselves, recognizing that God has, in fact, broken the teeth of the wicked and has, in fact, hit the jaw of the scoffer in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then also what we're asking for is for Him to come back and finalize or consummate that kingdom in the end. So we mean it a little bit differently than David does for sure because in part, most of this has already happened for us and we are still waiting that final consummation of God's kingdom where God will bring Christ back for the benefit of all of His people. But the Christian has to remember then that ultimately God has delivered His people from their foes by sending His own Son to die for their sins. And then the promise that is still outstanding for us is that though we die... Yet shall we live. At the end of all things, the last trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ will rise and God will come back to judge, Christ will come back to judge the living and the dead and he will take the wicked and cast them into the lake of fire with the devil, the beast, and the false prophet as Revelation tells us. So then we as Christians apply Psalm 3 to us. We have to remember that salvation is does belong to the Lord, and He's already proved it in Christ. He has delivered His people. And for us, this psalm takes a new and enlightened meaning. Now the salvation that we're crying for with David here is ultimate salvation. We're crying with John in Revelation, Come, Lord Jesus! So I can promise you, He will rescue thee, not because I'm like a prosperity gospel preacher taking this psalm and applying it to you right in the here and now. God is going to deliver you from that trial. He's going to pull from that trial from you and He's going to restore all the wealth that He took from you. No. I don't think we're guaranteed that promise at all. I can say He will rescue thee because He has promised that Christ will return to crush all the enemies of His people. And that includes not only physical people, flesh and blood people, but also depression and anxiety and all the other mental things that we deal with as well. 
Well, does that mean then that you will suffer in whatever trial you're going through to the end? Maybe. Sometimes the cancer ends in death. Sometimes the trial is here to stay. I don't like being the one to break that news to you and, and certainly don't like it if it's, if it's me feeling that, that kind of trial, knowing that it's here to last all the way to the end. I have no way of knowing whether you're going to be out of that trial tomorrow or not. Because after all, the psalmist reminds us, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to me. Not to you either. But I assure you that whether this specific trial endures to the end, or perhaps you get relief from this trial, and later you get whole new trials coming your way, what I can guarantee you is that we can look back at the cross of Christ, and I can say, He who killed His own Son will also graciously give us all things I can also say that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. I can say that not affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword will separate us from the love of Christ. No, I think in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I can say that. I can also say that I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can say that confidently. Surely then we can say because of what God has already done for us in Christ that He won't just leave us here. but he will one day return to give justice to the persecuted, to give relief to the suffering. So what that means then, if the aching remains for you through the rest of your life, the breaking will not. And if these trials do nothing else, they will at least make us long for the return of Christ all the more. Make us desire that He hasten the day. And if they serve to be a, a significant event in your life that shifts your perspective from dependence on yourself to dependence on the Lord who is the only one that can lift your head, who is the only one that can protect you, to whom salvation belongs, if these significant events in your life, these trials, shift your perspective from navel-gazing to Him and a reliance on Him and a deepening of your prayer life, then I think that we can say when Jesus returns, we will all agree that it was worth it. Because on that day, He will deliver Thee. He will be the lifter of your head. He will prove himself to be a shield about you because salvation belongs to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
I do pray for any right now who are going through that intense level of suffering. You know each and every one of them by name. I know some. I pray for them that you would lift their head. That their dependence would be wholly cast on you. I pray that you would deepen our prayer life to the point where our desires are to cast ourselves and our anxieties at your feet. That our hope is in the resurrection of the dead, not in things in this life. That our desire is to see that day hastened all the more. I pray, Lord, for as long as you tarry, that my heart would grow more each day in love with you. That my desire above all things in this world would be to serve in your kingdom now and forever. Amen.